uh, if I can put it like this, I, I need, of course, I need Christ, uh, the one who sacrificed for me, um, the priest to cleanse me. But I, I'm desperate in need of Christ, the prophet, to open my eyes, to, to strengthen my faith, to let me see more of, of him and, and more of his glory, more of the truth of the gospel. I need reminding of that daily. I need the gospel. Um, I need Christ, the king, to conquer the sin that remains in me. I need Christ, the king, to protect me against Satan. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Are you in the Orange County or Santa Ana area? We are exploring a church plant, Santa Ana Reformed, with the oversight and accountability of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde. If you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in the area, please check out our show notes for a link to sign up for updates. Our Twitter or Instagram at guiltgracepod or Santa Ana URC for the same signup link or simply email us at santaannareformed at gmail.com. We begin meetings on October 28th at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. Now on with the episode. Hello, everyone. Yet yeah, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today is a book club episode, and we are excited to have the author of Man of Sorrows, King of Glory, Jaunty Rhodes. And this book is about what the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus means for us. And so we're going to be talking about his book. And before we get into this conversation, as always, a reminder about a, our show notes. There is a link to Crossway, our good friends at Crossway that provided us this book. You can go on there, get a copy of this book yourself, and you can find other links like uh, the North American Presbyterian Reformed Churches, Napar Churches, as, one, as well as uh, one for Reformed Baptist brothers and sisters to find Reformed Churches near you, as well as a link to the Society of Reformed Podcasters, which we are a member of. So with all that said, let's go ahead and introduce, further introduce and welcome Jaunty Rhodes to our show. Yeah, Jaunty Rhodes is Minister of Christ Church Central Leeds, a congregation of the International Presbyterian Church in Leeds, United Kingdom, spent the last 10 years planting churches in England and is the author of Covenants Made Simple, as well as this brand new book, The Crossway. John T. is married to Georgina and they have four children. We are delighted to have John T. with us to talk about his book. Thanks for coming on. Pleasure. Good to be with you guys. Yeah, thank you. Um, let's just go ahead and kind of open it up to you and uh, let you kind of talk about yourself a little bit, your, your, your background, but also what, why you decided to write this book, the purpose you felt calling you to write this book and what the book is basically about. Sure. Well, I suppose in some ways, my, you know, my, my story leads into one of the reasons I wrote the book and I was, um, converted as a teenager through school I went to one of those kind of classic English boarding schools um, <laughs> so I never went to church but was converted through a Christian uh, mm. member of staff at the school and so it was a bit evangelical ever since then um, but kind of broad um, 
the kind of upbringing was was good on the central things. You know, the Bible was the word of God. Jesus died for you. He rose again. Repent and believe. Um, and that's kind of about it. Um, <laughs> so when I first, you know, when I first went to university, uh, I went to a, a, a really good Baptist church, and that was the first time I'd been a member of a church. It wouldn't be explicitly reformed, but but sort of conservative evangelical Bible teaching, you know, gospel honouring. And then I worked for seven years in a in a good conservative evangelical Anglican church, and 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 there I, that was the first time really I began to be introduced to, I suppose, some things that are a bit more reform distinctives. Um, and it was through that that through that that church I, I realised I wasn't an Anglican, I wasn't an Episcopalian, um, <laughs> and I knew I wasn't a Baptist and independent, but I'd never met a Presbyterian. Didn't know what a Presbyterian was. <laughs> I'd heard of them. Yeah, you're um, just a lost soul for a little bit. I, I was, yeah. And they they asked me to to lead a church plant to a city called Derby or Derby. You, you guys talk about the Kentucky Derby, don't you? Um, but that's, yeah. you know, that's from my city, Derby. I promise <laughs> you it's, it's, it's pronounced Derby as I tried to tell them when I was in Kentucky a few years ago, but they weren't having it. Um, but yeah, through sort of long and short of it, I, I became Presbyterian and, and led a Presbyterian church plant um, in Derby and then more recently in Leeds. But I suppose what that means is in England, um, you know, there might be across two denominations, there might be a, maybe a couple of dozen reformed evangelical presbyterian churches so it's just not natural to any of us mm. um so the, for example the first presbyterian church service i was ever in i was the minister leading it <laughs> i mean that's how ridiculous the situation is um first ever service and i'm the i'm the pastor so what it does mean i think is it means that we you know when we, particularly when we start trying to teach some of the, the central tenets of the reformed understanding of of christ and the gospel you haven't got much to rely on you know it's not in the culture even the christian culture so th this book really was a it came out of a sunday school class um for adults which again is a very rare thing in england but we we stole from you guys in america um and i wanted to do a a series on what does it mean for christ to be prophet priest and king uh, what is his you know all these greats of the faith he went before us talk about his his humiliation his exaltation you know what do those things mean um, and it, the, the actual trigger for it was a conversation with a U.S. pastor, actually, who he was over. We were wandering down the street in Leeds to, the, um, to have a drink one night. And we were talking about how when we preach, um, very often sermons, particularly Old Testament sermons, you, you kind of know you've got to preach Christ. Um, and, and the danger is they all end up sort of sounding the same. Mm. So you preach a sermon and then you think, well, no, I've got to speak about Christ. And so the last five minutes is a slightly crowbarred exposition of penal substitution or something mm. like that um and he just made the this guy called brian salter he made the offhand comment that it's because we we don't have enough of appreciation of the richness of christ as prophet mm. priest and king so we sort of narrow it almost like the only thing we want to talk about is christ the priest and even then the only thing we want to talk about is the cross and even then the only thing we want to talk about is penal substitution now i believe in all those things and i think you know they're central aren't they but but the bible does produce a, a wider picture a, a canvas where the cross is at the center if you like so the book is an attempt to, to sort of, I suppose, to shape out what does it mean that hmm. Christ was buried for us or circumcised for us or was on trial for us? Um, what's he doing now? Not just what did he do, but what, what is he doing? Hmm. Um, a kind of a richer picture, if you like. Yeah. And even maybe beyond um, preaching, is this, is this something you've seen in the churches and, and just in like the layperson understanding of who Christ is? I think that your average kind of Christian knows like, oh, he died for me, which is a priestly work. But how does somebody think about the kingly work? How does somebody think about the prophetic work today, not just when Christ was ministering? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, 
<laughs> like lots of, a lot of ministry, isn't it? You, you, you realize a lot of things are just correcting deficiencies in yourself, your own <laughs> spirituality, as well as your own ministry. And I think I increasingly, even just over this last year, it's been rough, hasn't it, for most people. But you know, this realization, like, uh, if I can put it like this, I, I need, of course, I need Christ, uh, the one who sacrificed for me, um, the priest to cleanse me. But I, I'm desperate in need of Christ, the prophet, to open my eyes, to to strengthen my faith, to let me see more of, of him and, and more of his glory, more of the truth of the gospel. I need reminding of that daily. I need the gospel. Um, I need Christ the King to conquer the sin that remains in me. I need Christ the King to protect me against Satan. Um, I, you know, if it, if it wasn't for Sinclair stealing the title first, I w- I'd have called the book The Whole Christ. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, it kind of, that's what, really what it's about. You know, we, oh. we need Christ in all the ways he comes to us in scripture. Mm. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, this was a really fun book to read. Uh, it was, uh, it's not, it shouldn't be intimidating for the everyday person, the, the popular level book, a uh, layman, it's, it's digestible, but yet challenging in the ways that you might learn about the depths of Christ you haven't really heard before um, that are true and biblical. It's from reform perspective. So you really um, represent the reformed church well on this. And it, it's just a great, great book on Christ. Like I, it's one of the better books that I've read, especially just, you know, recently that I can think of is just like easy to read, but also kind of educates you on new it's, it's deep, but easy to read and it's great. So um, with that said, let's kind of dive into the different aspects that you, you dis, how you describe Christ. So let's go into the first one. There's two natures of Jesus. And one is he is fully divine God, and he's also fully human like us. So why must they, why must they be understood as different from each other? While not confusing, they are separate in the one person of Jesus Christ. Sure. I mean, at the end of the day, the gospel is all about the person of Christ, isn't it? It is, it is a person who saves us. Um, and uh, Jesus is, the, to use the language of one Timothy, the mediator, the one mediator between man and God. Uh, and so it, in order for us to be, to be reconciled to God, uh, we really needed our mediator, our saviour, um, to be both man and God. God, of course, I mean, firstly, of course, Jesus just is the son of God. He is fully divine. So um, as soon as you tone that down in, in any way, you're, you're well, you've lost the gospel, haven't you? Um, and I think you see that not just in the outright denials of, of Christ's divinity you might get with a, a Jehovah Witness or a Muslim or whatever, but actually in, in the way some people teach that, you know, when he came to earth, to use that, that sort of human way of speaking, that he, the son of God somehow lost some of his divine attributes or gave up some of the divine attributes, stopped being omnipresent or stopped being, you know, all powerful. Um, but you can't do that with God. <laughs> you know, Christ is and remains fully God. But of course, if I can put without sounding blasphemous, um, in a sense, God alone, you know, if he'd remained just God alone, he could not have saved mm-hmm. because ultimately it's, it's us mankind who's, uh, broken the covenant of works you've sinned against god and so we needed a second adam we needed a, a human being to fulfill the law for us and we needed a human being who was one of us to die for us to pay the penalty to take the curse of that covenant and 
nobody could do that but a true human being. You know, there's lots of sinless beings in the, in the universe, aren't there? Gabriel or the Archangel Michael or, you know, thousands of who knows how many angelic beings who've never sinned, but they can't represent us. They're not one of us. Um, so hence, you know, language of Hebrews, he, Christ had to partake of our nature, share in our nature in every way in order to be a true representative. Uh, and so you, you need to pres preserve both natures, divine and human, um, fully distinguishing them, but not, not separating them. Um, so you don't want to end up with two Jesuses, a human Jesus and a, a divine Jesus, as if one sort of lived inside the other or something. Um, that's the old era of uh, a heretic called Nestorius. Mm -hmm. um, you don't want to merge them together to form this kind of hybrid. Um, Eutyches used to teach this as if Jesus was sort of half man, half God. Well, that, that's not going to help either because we need someone who's fully man, fully God. And my, my suspicion is that, uh, I mean, I know, I know the UK seemed better than the US, but evangelicals were, were rightly kind of g'd up to defend the divinity of Christ. You know, we want to say to people, Jesus isn't just a, a prophet. He's not just a, a Gandhi type prophet. Um, he's, he's truly God. And almost we, I wonder if sometimes we find it harder to believe he's really a man with a yeah. real human mind with its, its limitations. Um, so he was sinless, of course, but he was really human with a real human mind, a real human soul real human emotions, and of course, a real, a real human body. Um, so like us in every way, mm. except, of course, sin. Yeah. And he, I mean, based off the, the book of Hebrews, he couldn't have been a priest if he were not human. Absolutely. Um, you know, if, in, in many ways, he couldn't have represented us. So, you know, each high priest is drawn from among the people. Yeah. Um, but also he'd be like, you know, as Hebrew says, he'd be unable to sympathize us with us in our weakness. You know, yeah. high priests come from within <clears throat> yeah. um, the, the race. So, yeah, the, the true humanity of Christ is is absolutely central to the. Yeah, to the incredibly. Yeah, incredibly crucial. If you were just just God or like partly human, the temptations would have been easy to overcome. But since he's human, he went through the extent of the temptation past the point that we've never been to. And so he's seen the end of temptation that he crushed. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and he had to do that as man because um, yeah. the game is that the head of our race, you know, yeah. sure, God could squat the devil, but that, that doesn't sort the problem out of, of our guilt um, and our enslavement. Yeah. Yeah. That, thank you. That's a great explanation. That I think a lot of people do unfortunately miss. So he, as only God could save us because we sinned against him. He is the one that needs to forgive us. And so as a representative of humankind, he has to actually become flesh and bone, a human like us. And he feels the temptations and all those things like us, but he can overcome them because he's also fully God. So, and also you go into that, even his uh, atoning death and um, his work on the cross that's where you dive into a lot of the human aspect of him. You know, he felt the cup of wrath from God and, you know, why God have you um, forsaken me? And the, then really like representing his death and the human part of Christ. Could you kind of dive into like that, that Easter aspect the first easter of the human part of jesus sure and um, yeah in some ways i found that the 
the, the hardest, but also the, if I can put it this way, the most interesting bit of the book to write, really just to dive into a little bit more. So we, we know, of course, Christ died for us. Um, yeah, it's 1 Corinthians 15, central gospel truth. But when you start digging down a little bit, we, we know Christ bore the, the wrath of God at sin um, on the cross. Okay, it's a penal substitutionary understanding of the atonement. Again, it is key. But also, the, you know, the Bible tells us other things like, um, you know, that God doesn't suffer or change. Hmm. So when you start trying to sort of put together the picture, if you like, um, it just makes you think a little bit harder about the cross. You know, what is going on there? And actually, like Nick, you, you said it helpfully a minute ago. I think you've got to be clear that um, when Christ dies, um, he does so as man. God, God is immortal, isn't he? 1 Timothy, he's immortal. He dwells in unapproachable light. So God can't die. But every now and again, even in some, to be honest, even from some good folk, I've just noticed over the last sort of few years, um, people... Um, speaking about the Trinity being ripped apart, you know, when, when Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, people will say things like that, you know, just for a brief moment, impossible though it seems, the Trinity was torn apart. Um, but you just can't have that. I mean, yeah. part of it is going back to a theologian called Maltman, who was, who was no, <laughs> no evangelical. Yeah. Yeah, but exactly, yeah. But, it, it, you know, God, God, God cannot suffer. You can't nail God to a cross. Um, but importantly also, we don't need God to suffer. We need a man to pay the penalty for our sin. So when Christ dies, he does so as man, according to his human nature. Now, you need to be careful there. You don't want to say human Jesus died um, as if there's a human Jesus and a, and a divine Jesus, because that's back to, to Nestorius and having two Jesuses. And then we're in trouble because you know, you've split the mediator apart. But you do want to say that Christ died according to his human nature. So it's perfectly okay i think to say the son of god died for us that's right because it's only natures don't do anything for us it's only the person who does something for us and the person is the son of god but he does things according to his two natures and particularly that the, the wrath bearing death is according to his human nature um because he is that that last adam representing us as our as our covenant head um so yeah i, I i'm perfectly happy saying singing you know whatever it was for him, and can it be, you know, thou my God didst die for me. I think that's fine, as long as you understand it to mean you died according to a human nature. Mm. Yeah, it's a good, so I mean, I've heard the same thing. God died for you, the Trinity was split, that the Father turned his face away, and so there's this separation between the Father and the Son, where you're taking, I mean, you can take economic language, and you put it on top of who the Trinity actually is in and of themselves, which goes into a further conversation, but it's, it's really helpful to understand. I think it's because, like you said, evangelicals, where I mean, both Nick and I come from, um, you don't like you just don't credit the human nature of Christ to the extent that he was human. And when you lose the human nature, it's very easy to say some of these things because you don't see the yeah. full human on the cross dying for your sins, living the life that you should have lived. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, jumping into that too, um, you explain in the book that Christ's death points to Leviticus. So as far as like the sacrificial thing and, and him going into the tomb um, before his resurrection and whatnot. So talking more about his human side and how it, how it points to actually Leviticus. Could you talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, like I said to you just before we, we came on air, I only got the book back about a week ago, so I can never remember quite what I said. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I know what I believe. But I, yeah, um, cuff, this is good. Yeah, yeah, but I suspect um, in terms of the grave, one thing I noticed preaching, I preached through at least the first 10 chapters of Leviticus a couple of years ago. And one of the things I noticed with the, um, I forget which sacrifice it is, but it's one of the atoning sacrifices. Um, uh, yeah, I can't remember which of the five main sacrifices, but one of the atoning ones anyway. Because um, obviously in Leviticus, not all the sacrifices are atoning yep. sacrifices. Some yep. of them are, you know, fellowship offerings and all the rest. Yep. But um, there was just this detail about taking the remains of the atoning sacrifice and putting them in a clean place. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to, got to, you know, the remains after the sacrifice go to a clean place. And it, it, it just, it's just noticeable. I think in three of the four Gospels, uh, we're told that Christ was buried in an unused tomb. Yep. Um, and you kind of think, well, why are you telling us that? You know, there are no wasted <laughs> yeah, words yeah, in Scripture. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there may be all sorts of things going on there. But I, I do wonder if one of the things going on there is we're being told that that is an, a, a clean place. Because anything touched by death in Levitical law, it becomes unclean. Um, whereas a tomb that's never had a body in it is a clean place. So I just, you know, yeah. I, I wouldn't go to the state for it, but I just wonder if that's another little point, mm. uh, little pointer, another way that Christ's burial fulfills the Old Testament. Um, at the end of the day, that, that one Corinthians 15 passage, you know, what I preach you first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture that he was buried. You know, the burial is in there somewhere. So, mm. Um, mm. yeah, I, you know, your listeners can make of that what they will. It's not central, <laughs> but um, I do. Yeah. I just wonder if it's a little extra. Yeah, 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 that's that's a that's a good that's a good catch. Yeah, isn't that one of your favorite books in the Bible, Peter? Is Leviticus? I I, I almost so as a as an intern this summer, I had the choice between either Judges and Leviticus. I was I was inches away from pre- preaching Leviticus because it is so <laughs> astonishing once you go through it and you realize just how much is fulfilled in the New Testament, just how much it re- like Hebrews relies on Leviticus. Yeah. And then I chose judges, which, I mean, was hard, but yeah, Leviticus. I mean, I love Leviticus, but my wife told me, I was like, you want to put them to sleep? Is that, is that what, like, was that your goal for preaching Leviticus? <laughs> I was like, you don't get it. There's so much beauty in this book. Yeah. yeah it's, um, if you want a rollicking story, probably judges was a safer bet, wasn't it? But um, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. Books once you, I don't know if you come up um, Michael Michael Morales has written a book recently. Oh yeah, he's his. Yeah. Oh my gosh, his stuff on Leviticus and Exodus is gold. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then going back to the the natures, I, I I like how a few times in your book you mentioned that natures don't do anything the a person does. So natures in and of themselves don't really do anything but it's the actual the person that has those nature's acts so that's that helped me under like wrap around my brain of of the the two natures of christ where they're they can exist 100 two of them 100 divine 100 human and still be in one human being as jesus yeah in one person yeah um yeah one person yeah and because otherwise you get into strange territory, don't you? Where you, if, if you start saying that natures do something, you, right. you really are into two separate Jesuses. And yeah. bizarrely, then the, you'd have, you'd end up, I suppose, having to say something like the human Jesus died for us. And then we're suddenly rescued by a human being that's not God. 
you know, but salvation comes from the Lord. You know, no human being on their own has got the right to die for us, as you, you said a moment ago. So, yeah, you want you want the two natures without confusion um, and without separation um, into two different Jesuses or something. But ultimately, it is always the son of God who acts. It's just that he, he took to himself a, a, a true human nature in the incarnation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, we all know the son of God was begotten and he's lived for eternity as the second person, the Trinity. And then when he was incarnate was when he was actually born from the Virgin Mary became human. Um, so you mentioned in there that the Jesus's incarnation as human was by addition, not subtraction. How can, how is that possible? How can you clarify that? Sure. Um, of course, anytime we're talking about, you know, the son of God coming to earth, we're using, um, we're necessarily using, so it's what's technically called analogical language. We're, we're using picture language. Um, you know, even Calvin says, you know, the son of God, this is not a direct quote, but a paraphrase, but the son of God came to earth without ever leaving you know, heaven, without ever leaving glory, because, you know, Christ is both as the son of God, he's omnipresent. And of course, as God, you know, he dwells beyond the universe anyway you know he's not constrained by time and space you know it's not as if god lives in a place called heaven you know and, and there are two eternal realities so when 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 the son of god comes to earth when he becomes incarnate um take in in mary's womb um we mustn't think anything has changed in god i, I think that's the, the crucial thing so um to you know, a phrase that the church fathers kept coming back to, you know, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. I think that's a really helpful little phrase, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. So sometimes people say, has Jesus always been man? Well, no. Um, if you went back to the year 50 AD, you would not find the son of God, sorry, 50 BC, my bad, <laughs> 50 years before Christ, you would not find the son of God having a human nature. Yeah. Um, he's not yet incarnate. It happened in time. But when he did come to earth, he, he, he kept everything he was, <laughs> remained fully divine in every way of one nature with the Father, um, but n- knew in terms of earth's history, um, he took to himself, took to himself a, a full human nature. Um, so that's why it's, a, you know, it might be clunky language, but that's why it's a sort of addition, if you like, um, not a taking away. It, he's not losing um, sometimes people use that Philippians 2 passage, um, which in various translations talks about him emptying himself uh, and try and use that Philippians 2 passage to say, well, you know, Jesus, he kept the love of God and he kept the the mercy of God and grace. But he, he it's almost like he kind of left the, I don't know, the omnipresence of God behind when he came to earth or, so that he could be a real man. Well, well no, mm-hmm. he doesn't have to limit himself as God in order to be truly human. Um so he remains all that he was, but he becomes what he was not, which is truly human. And it means, of course, you then end up in a situation where you can ask questions like, um, so when Jesus walked on earth, um, or, or take, take the first Christmas, he's born and put in the manger. If you said, where is the son of God? There are always two answers, or at least two answers. <laughs> it's totally true to say the son of God is in front of me in the manger, you know, if you're one of the, the shepherds. But it's also true to say the son of God is, as he's always been omnipresent or it's true. The son of God is as he's always been beyond the universe dwelling, you know, father, son, and spirit. Does, does Jesus know all things? Well, according to his divine nature, he knows all things, but according to his human nature, 
humans don't know all things. So he has a real human mind that is able to honestly say, for example, in Mark's gospel, I, I don't know when I'm going to return. Um, or, you know, who touched me? And when a woman touches him in the crowd, what, you know, how can Jesus say, who touched me? Surely he knows all things. What well, he does, according to his divine nature, but he also has a real human mind that, that, that just doesn't know all things. Um, so great mystery, of course, but you need to hold on to both to keep the, the person of Christ uh, unified. Yeah, we were we were talking before before airing about one of the mutual friends that we have, Dr. Dr. Brad Bittner, and one of his big things in class last semester, Pauline Epistles, was especially with the Philippians 2 passage, the kenosis passage. Yeah. It, there's a word we call a participle, so it just kind of governs another noun. It it agrees with kenosis. So it's he emptied by doing this, by adding on the form of a servant, so be, by becoming a servant, not by taking away his divinity, but by doing something. So you have to look yeah. through the entirety of that context to see, no, he's not subtracting. He's, he's adding, which is, which was his humiliation, which was his subjection, um, where he did not have a human nature before the incarnation. And that was his subjection under the law. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's... <laughs> we were nailed on that one. It's like, you better get yeah. this right or else you, you have no understanding of the two natures of Christ. Yeah, yeah absolutely. No, that's helpful. I think I'm hearing too that, you know, obviously Jesus as the second person, the Trinity created man, he created everything. He created man. And then he became the seed of the woman as a human mediator. Yeah. I mean, all, all these things are just mind blowing, aren't they? Um, and you, you end up, as you look at the person of Christ, there is an unfathomable mystery. Um, you know, the Lord of life is killed. <laughs> uh, the one, you know, the one who is the, the fountain of life thirsts on the cross. You, you know, the light of the world is extinguished in the darkness. But, but all these things are only possible because he is God. He is the God man. Yeah. You mentioned something really um, interesting. I have, I've never really thought about this part before where you said, well, there is an aspect of Jesus need, needing to live a sinless life, obviously, and being obedient to the law, right? So yeah. you kind of answer the question um, would be, well, what if God just came to earth, was incarnate, was born, and immediately died as a sacrifice, like yeah. as a baby? So yeah. you, you make that, you use that rhetorical question as a point to explain why he had to live a life of ministry can you maybe explain that a little bit because there's not just the death of the son of god in human in human form there's also him having to live a life of obedience yeah yeah i, I can't remember quite where in the book i i say that but it, it's um i think it's in part it, it's, it's it's part of this going back to this idea that because it's evangelicals, we rightly focus on Christ crucified, okay, and the, and the sacrifice of Christ. Um, I guess there's a danger that other aspects of his life and ministry can fade away a little bit into the background, and we 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 don't see their importance um, or their significance. Um, so to put it, I actually think the cross is is not just about the priestly work of Christ. I think it's about the prophetic work of Christ and the kingly work of Christ. So I think even with the cross, we tend to narrow it too much to the priestly. But even for the sake of argument, if we were to say Christ dying for us was priestly work alone, um, 
you know, you got to ask yourself, well, okay, well, even um, six months old, Jesus is a perfect human being, um, sinless. But but could he have died for us then? You know, could he have just been put on the altar? You know, or kind of Abraham and Isaac like when he was a young lad, however old Isaac was. Could he have just? And presumably the answer is no. You know, just the right time, Christ died for us. So I think there's a number of reasons, um, no doubt. A couple that spring to mind very quickly. First is he, you know he he has come not just to be a sacrifice, but to be a a prophet and a king as well. So he needs to reveal the true nature of God. He had more to say, to do, to show us, restore the, if you like, the image of God among us, so we know what he's like. But also he, um, because he comes as the last Adam, he, he needs to fulfill the law for us. So if you think about Adam in the, you know, I'm sure you've done sessions probably on um, on covenant theology, but if you think of Adam in the Garden of Eden, um, you know, what what's he to do? Well, the kind of children's Bible version of the story is all he has to do is not take the fruit um, and then everything will be okay. But that's not quite it, is it? You know, he has to fulfill the law. He's under this covenant of works. He's got to love the Lord, his God, with heart, soul, mind and strength. Um, you know, he wouldn't be okay for him, for example, to, um, I don't know, to, to, to refuse to, to till the earth, refuse to um, go forth and multiply with Eve, to abuse his wife and wreck the garden and then just turn around and say, well, I haven't taken from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as if that would make everything okay. And of course not. He, he was meant to fulfill the law. Um, and so when he fails, our, our rescuer, our, our second Adam, our last Adam needs to be someone who's, who not only bears the curse that we inherit from Adam, um, which is, you know, the death and, and the penal substitution atonement, but he also needs to be a, a second Adam who, as man fulfills the law for us, fulfills all righteousness for us, um, keeps the Ten Commandments, if you want to put it like that. Um, and therefore, when we're justified as Christians, we, you know, it's not just that our debt is written off and you know, it's a bit crude, but it's not just like we're returned to zero, if you like, on the scale. We're, no, we're justified. We're declared righteous. Christ's active obedience, his perfect life is credited to our account. Um, and so as man, he needed to, if you like, to, to live to earn that perfect righteousness. Um, hence, when he's tempted by Satan, he doesn't, I think it's, I think it'd be unhelpful to say that he resists Satan in the temptations because he's God. No, he's tempted as man and resists as man because it's as man as this last Adam that he conquers. Um, we need, we need human righteousness and he has to fulfill it, which takes, takes years. Yeah. If I can steal from one of, Next question is it? I mean, it just it works perfectly here because that's that's his passive and active obedience too. Is his active obedience is his ministry, um, him fulfilling the covenant of works, and then his passive is his uh, is his death on the cross where he he fulfills the wrath of God. He takes on the wrath of God. So can you kind of nuance that and and show like what like kind of how how that works out? How we can how, how we as evangelicals can see that we need both of those, not just one of those, in order to fulfill all righteousness. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, again, particularly reform folk have have used these categories of Christ's active and passive obedience. Um, and his active obedience is is his if you like his positive obedience to his heavenly Father. You know, I've come to do your will. Um, and so, it really, it, it, it's it, it's everything from well, from the moment he becomes incarnate through to his last breath. Um, so. Um, the active is, is all about fulfilling the law for us, fulfilling that covenant works, um, fulfilling all righteous for us. 
Whereas passive obedience, passive sounds like inactive, doesn't it? But it, it doesn't mean that. It's to do with to do with suffering, so bearing the curse for us. And passion. And again, passion, exactly. Yeah, like the passion of the Christ. But again, it's the the, the I think the slight misunderstanding would be that active obedience is sort of from the moment he's born through to the moment the first nail goes through, and then it switches to passive obedience. Mm. But actually his whole life is one of suffering on our behalf. Mm. Um, and of course it climaxes in the cross. Um, but even on the cross, he is still actively obeying, fulfilling the law, isn't he? Um, mm. You know, He's not sinning against those, even who you know, crucify him. He's still full of grace and righteousness on the cross. And likewise, his whole life actually is one of suffering for us. Um, you know, he's circumcised for us, he's rejected for us, mocked for us, despised for us, even before the first nail goes in at the crucifixion. So, yeah, the, the two sides of, of one coin, um, bearing the curse that Adam passed on to us, but also fulfilling the law where Adam failed. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I've heard it before. Yeah, the, it's the active up until the cross and the passive takes over. And then yeah. that's what saves us instead of seeing both of them kind of interchangeably inseparable throughout his yes. ministry. Yeah, yeah. And you, you were tying <clears throat> Jesus's passive obedience to circumcision too. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think Jonathan Edwards had a line about it's the, it's the first shedding of atoning blood or something like that. I, I can never I can never remember these quotes word perfect. So you'll have to forgive me, any Edwards experts listening. But um, you know, a bit a bit like you know, a bit like his baptism. Why is Jesus baptized? You know, he doesn't need. Uh, what well, just John the Baptist says, you know, what, what are you doing? I, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you're baptizing me, not the other way around. You know, Christ doesn't need a baptism for the forgiveness of his sins, but he comes to identify with us. He mm. takes on his shoulders. Um, so he's always, um, you can always view Christ in two ways, if you like. He is the, he's the perfect son. Um, so he's sinless, perfectly obedient, but he's also the substitute. Um, so he bears on his shoulders um our sins our guilt and so although he you know if you like symbolically as he's as everyone else is baptized in the jordan it's sort of a picture of their sins being washed off them but when jesus goes into the jordan it's, <laughs> it's everyone else's sins being washed onto him you know he's saying look i'm going to identify with the people who need their sins bearing and i think similarly with circumcision circumcision is a sign of the sinful nature being cut off um but but jesus is saying no i am going to I am going to be cut off. Um, you get that language in Colossians, don't you? Cut off. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually being cut off all the way through the Old Testament is a sign of the, the curse. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus will become the one who is the, the curse bearer um, for us. Language of Galatians, isn't it? He bears the curse for us. Yeah. Yeah, and connecting um, the beginning of the Bible with people like Eve and events and like in the garden connects to revelation and he dipped into this in the book, new creation and Jesus's church and mentioned God in, in the beginning when he was talking about introducing Eve, he said, it's not good for man to be alone. And that's where we're introduced to Eve. And then you kind of point to like making the point that we are Eve as the church today. So I'm just kind of bringing this up to, get a good understanding of where we are right now in God's redemptive history as the visible church age. How is Jesus active and alive right now as he always was and has been um, even before his incarnation and he's still in human form in heaven. Um, I think that's cool to think about, but how do we respond to this side of being on 
being on this side of heaven pre-second coming? Yeah, yeah, um, that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that struck me in preparing the, I mean, this began as a, a series I taught at church and then, so in preparing it even then, I suppose I realised in myself and, and probably in others around me, in my circles at least, we were much better about speaking about what Christ did for us than what Christ is doing for us. So if you take those, those categories of Jesus being prophet, priest and king, you know, perhaps we can see how he was prophet, priest and king in his earthly ministry, you know, um, cleansing us, prophet, revealing God to us, king, conquering you know, the, the, the devils that came at him, the, the waves that were threatening to drown him and so on. Resurrection, he's crowned king. But of course, he remains man at his resurrection, at his ascension, as he heads uh, to heaven, as he, at his session, as he sits down at the right hand of the Father. So Christ is still prophet, priest and king for us today. So you think of something like, um, you know, Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Um, who is building the church today? Well, Christ is. It's not us building the church for him as if we'll give it to him as a present when he returns and he's sort of off stage now, um, inactive. No, it is still Christ who builds through his people. Um, it is Christ who's building a spiritual temple, to use that language. Um, who is it that rules the church? Well, it's not elders or pastors or ministers or bishops, or whatever your denomination might call them. Ultimately, it's Christ who is the head of the church. And he's the active head of the church. Um, Craig Troxell, actually, he used to teach at uh, Westminster Calvary, if you guys know him. I did one of his courses when he came over a few years ago, and you know, he, he laboured that point. You know, Christ is he's the presiding head of the church. I think it's a, a James Bannerman line. He, he's not he's not handed it over. He's not delegated it. He still rules. Of course, he puts elders in place, um, but it is still him who rules. And it, it's really important, I think, to keep keep the active um, an active understanding of what Christ is doing now, praying for us as our, our priest, ruling over us as our king, um, speaking to us as he, you know, on Sunday as you're you know, as your pastor preach, presuming he's preaching faithfully. Um, you know, what are you hearing? You're not just hearing a man's opinions about God. Um, you're hearing Christ speak to you through his scriptures. Um, it is his voice, not, you know, whatever accent. It might have a, you know, an Alabama accent or a Milwaukee accent or a English accent. But ultimately, the, you know, the pastor is a, you know, Calvin says he's a, he's a voice of God again, providing he's being faithful to the, to the scriptures. So yeah, Christ is active now and, you know, feeding, clothing his bride, the church, uh, as Paul calls her in, in, in um, Ephesians 5. And one day when he returns, well, we'll be reunited. Um, but, he, but he's always prophet, priest and king, even today. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good thing to point out. Yeah. Yeah, um, this was very helpful. Um, I'm just seeing if there's anything else to bring up. Do you have any comments or things you'd like to explain that we didn't get a chance to based on the questions we had? I'd just love I've, you to. I've, I have a question that we can that that's still on your question list that we haven't we haven't asked yet. Oh, okay. Just because the the book had so much to do with prophet, priest, and king. Um, so related to his two two natures is prophetic priestly and kingly duties so how do we how do you understand this pre-incarnation and post-incarnation because it it seems like he takes takes on a specific priestly aspect post his incarnation during his king or during his uh during his earthly work 
But how, how do we see these three related pre-incarnation and post-incarnation? Like, is he king of the church before his incarnation? Is he only king after mm-hmm. the incarnation? How do, how do we see some of this stuff as Christians today? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, think, no, I think you've got to say that Christ has always been the, the one mediator. So he has always been the mediator, prophet, priest, and king, um, uh, Old Testament and new. Um, of course, in the, you don't want to say that he's already come in the flesh in the Old Testament um, because, you, well, he'd end up in all kind of weirdness there, a kind of yeah. I don't know, the pre-incarnate incarnate Christ or something. I don't know what on earth you'd have to talk about there. But no, he has always been the prophet, the priest, the king uh, of his church. And part of that connects with your understanding of, of covenant theology as well. You know, there is, ultimately, there's only one church of God, um, you know, from well, presuming if you think Adam saved, then from Adam onwards um, or Abraham onwards, wherever you want to start. But there's only one people and they, they're into the one. They're part of the bride of Christ. You know, Abraham, Moses, Sarah, na- name who you like from Old Testament saints. They are part of the one, the one bride of Christ. So I think um, you've got to say Christ is, has always been. Uh, the mediator um but he only if you like he only came in his human nature obviously uh from zero ad or whatever you know whatever year it was so in in the same way i suppose a kind of parallel example would be how is abraham forgiven or how is moses forgiven is moses forgiven because he sacrifices a goat no he's he's forgiven because christ died for his sins had christ died for his sins at that time no but the cross works backwards so it's quite easy to see how the priestly work works backwards mm-hmm. i think you just do the same with the, with the prophetic and the kingly yeah. um you know think of peter's language about the, the prophets you know mm-hmm. what is it that inspires the prophet it's the spirit of christ um so that you know isaiah jeremiah elijah and all the rest it is christ because he is the mediator he's the son of god he is the one appointed to be messiah prophet priest king of his, of his church um old and new mm. okay and what about, so we're talking about his humiliation a lot. Is, um, is, th- is that still going on right now? Or is it just as all exaltation? Just wanted to clarify that for everyone. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so we talk about humiliation and exaltation. Um, they're not, when I say they're not biblical terms, all I mean by that is they're not words you read off the, the page of scripture, literally, they're like the word Trinity or something. Hmm. But you know, traditionally they've been used by reformed folk, really, you know, not just Presbyterians, but Baptists and congregations, all sorts. Uh, humiliation to refer to, if you like, from womb to tomb, you know, taking on flesh and the events of his you know, life um, all the way through to his burial. And then the exaltation, a bit like a U-bend. <laughs> so the exaltation begins with his resurrection and finishes with his second coming. So in that sense, you know, we're now in the period of Christ's exaltation. But and you know, for that, you'd go to passages like Philippians 2, you know, as we've already mm. talked about, or even Luke 24, you know, when, on the Emmaus Road, where Jesus says, you know, do you not know the scriptures, that Christ had to suffer, and after that, you know, and then you get the, the exhortation. So I think that, that, that humiliation exhortation pattern is a good one. You see it pro- you know, in, prophetically in the life of David. You know, it's humiliation, isn't it, before he's, ex- he's raised up to the throne? Yeah. The first David. But... Some people, I mean, I've read a couple of things on this recently. Some people have pushed back and said, well, are you saying that there was no sort of glory, no exaltation, no glory of Christ while he walked on the earth? Well, of course there was. You know, Jesus can talk about the cross in John's gospel. It's the cross where he's lifted up. 
So isn't, isn't the cross part of the exaltation, people will say. And, and then you're, you're just, it's just sort of language debates really that I, I don't think we need to get too fussed about. But in the sort of traditional terminology, humiliation ends with the burial and exaltation begins with the resurrection. So we're there now. But of course, is it still amazing humility, for example, that Christ has remained man? Well, of course it is. You know, does he stoop to us even now? Yes, of course he does. So you don't want exaltation. Um, Thomas Goodwin made a lot of this in his The Heart of Christ for Sinners. You don't want to think that the exalted Christ is somehow less gracious, less merciful, less kind, less approachable than Christ in his humiliation on earth. Um, and that's a great comfort to us, isn't it? You know, you, it is the same Jesus who, when the leprous man said to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Christ said, I am willing. It is that same Jesus who is just as kind and gracious now when we come to him with our sins in the morning if you are willing you can forgive me you can cleanse me he still says i am willing um we shouldn't make the exaltation of christ turn him into some sort of distant stern monarch you know he's still praying for us mm. he still sympathizes with us in our weakness um, it is the same christ mm. yeah he's yeah. still representing us in in heaven and uh on behalf of us to the father He's yeah. literally uttered our names to the Father. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think Mark Jones has a line, I think. Mm -hmm. There's no, again, I'll misquote him, but basically there's not a Christian on earth who hasn't had his name mentioned by Jesus to the Father. If you're a Christian, it's because Jesus has taken your name to the Father. Um, and, he, you know, he lives to intercede for us, doesn't he? Romans, Hebrews, Christ, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a mystery, but he, he prays for us. He intercedes for us with his Father. Yeah. So this this is all extremely helpful. Some, so why could we say this is not theological hair splitting, but actually really important and crucial for the heart of the gospel? Um, just clarify that a minute. Which which bit? Kind of like everything put together. Um, just knowing that this isn't all explaining the depths of Christ and his natures and his states yeah. and his three offices. Why is this not theological hair splitting and actually the, at the heart of the gospel? Okay. Yeah. Well, in some ways we, I suppose we've got to where we began in that um, yeah, Paul says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Um, we, you know, does, does every single Christian need to be able to parse out how the two natures of Christ work in one person or how the three persons of the Trinity exist in one, you know, one substance. And well, okay, sure. No, you know, we, we're going to, you know, there are plenty of faithful Christians who, who, who might not have the technical terminology or, or whatever it may be, you know, that, you know, who know Christ died for them, know he's their God, know he's their savior. And, you know, there, there we go. Um, but these things, I mean, well, I hope my prayer is these things we've spoken about and the things in the book, are revealed to us in scripture to en enrich our view of Christ. Um, so certainly, I mean, think about the, the person, you know, the fact that he is God and man. Um, you know, as we said, earlier, that's, that's, that's vital for the, <laughs> to put it crudely, the gospel working. I need a man to represent me, to die for me. Um, but a, a mere man, you know, if not that such thing exists, but if somehow there was a sinless man on earth, he wouldn't be, he wouldn't have the right to represent me. Um, before God, just to offer himself as a sacrifice. It needs to be God who saves, only God saves, uh, as Jonah told us. 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, Christ is the gospel, isn't he? You know, so the more we think about him, the more we're thinking about the, you know, the greatest gift that God has, has given us. Um, and these categories of prophet, priest and king, they're not, I don't know, they're not from the Westminster Confession or Calvin or, you know, the Heidelberg Catechism or London Baptist Confession or whatever they are. They are biblical categories. Christ calls himself a prophet, a priest, and a king mm-hmm. in the New Testament. Um, so it's really, they are biblical categories, mm. um, not sort of invented by theologians at the Reformation or something. Mm. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. This this all points to John 14, 6 to me too, where he is the way, the truth, and the life, and only through Jesus points to the Father. Absolutely. He's, you know, he, Thomas says, isn't it? You know, show us the Father, uh, and that'll be good enough. As if you know, we've got you, Jesus. Sure, sure, that's that's great and everything. But but show us the Father. Let's let's really see what God's like. Yeah. Thomas, you've dropped you've dropped the ball. Um, If you've seen Jesus, you've seen what God is like. You know, I and the Father are one. Um, So Christ, Babbing has this great line where he says Christ is a prophet, not just in what he says, but all the more in what he does. You know, just everything he does is prophetic. It's, it, it reveals what God is like to us. Um, and, you know, at our, our, our summer conference just a few weeks ago for IPC, Sinclair Ferguson was preaching for us. And he, you know, he said, that's why they killed him <laughs> because the, the Pharisees didn't want a God like that, hmm. um, full of grace to sinners. Um, hmm. So that's why they, they kill him. But that is what God is like. God is, there's nothing ungodlike about Christ. Yeah, that's good. That's a that's a good way to end it. But uh, yeah, thank you for coming on, John T. on on your on your brand new book with Crossway. It's been it's been a pleasure having you on and and really diving deep into a topic we've kind of touched on with the three offices and the exaltation, um, but also understanding his humiliation of the crosses. There's just things that we not just nuance, but we, we don't, we don't dive deep enough into to see the personal work of Christ. So thanks for, thanks for writing this. Thanks for coming on. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been great having you on. Pleasure. Great to, uh, great to meet you guys. Thanks for having us on. Absolutely. Yeah. And we will, we will see you guys next week. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you, after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face, this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing and, uh, after that after tithing if you have any means left over please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy as again we bridge the gap to reform christian (laughs) theology exactly yeah and you guys can find that link on 
Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes. If you're on this podcast, this specific episode, scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes, and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading the gospel further. Yep. All for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time.